Okay, well, um, I've got a very tenuous link between the game we played at the start and the message, so I'll go through that. I know, it's like I've thought of everything. Um, that game we played at the start, it demonstrates that all of us have gut reactions when we hear certain words or phrases. And sometimes our gut reactions are the same. Shout out to the four people that are completely aligned with me. Um, but sometimes they're different. And that's probably just because of our different life experiences. That changes what um, comes to our minds when people say something to us. But I wonder this evening what your gut reaction is to me saying these four words to you. God is with you. For some of us, these might be familiar and encouraging words. Maybe it's something your parents would say to you when you had a nightmare. Maybe it's the theme of your favourite Bible passages or songs. Maybe knowing that God is with you is a truth that helps you walk through life with a spring in your step. Perhaps for others, hearing the words God is with you is hard to hear. Maybe it's difficult to believe it. Perhaps because of your life experiences, you actually feel like the opposite is true. It can seem that God is with everyone else, but not with me. For example, where is God when others are unkind to me? Where is God when I'm struggling with temptations? Where is God when I lose a loved one or a close relationship falls apart? How can God be with me when my life is like this? Now, I believe that we'll find the answers to all of those questions as we look at the life of Joseph together. We'll see that God was with Joseph in his successes and in his sufferings. Throughout all the ups and downs of Joseph's life, God was with him. And God was working out all things to fulfill his great plan of salvation. So I've got three points. They're really easy to remember because they're three Ps. The first one is Potiphar or God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. Is that going to come up? So yeah, there's always a P in all of the points. So if you go away, you'll remember it easy. Right, um, hopefully all of us have a Bible with us, so please follow along. We're in Genesis chapter 39, so I'll give you a second to get there. Spoiler alert, it's the first book of the Bible, so very easy. The God who is with us, Genesis 39 to 41, and point one is this. God was with Joseph in Potiphar's house. So I'm going to start reading now, chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And I'm just skipping ahead to verse 6 now. Now... Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife." How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, 
day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. Now, something you're going to notice all the way through chapter 39, and it's right there in verse 2, is that the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers, as we looked at yesterday. He was now hundreds of miles from home, and he was completely alone. His only comfort would have been God's presence with him. And because God was with Joseph, he quickly becomes successful in the house of his new master. God's presence and kindness to Joseph was so obvious that even Potiphar could see that there was something unique about this guy. So Potiphar puts Joseph in charge of all that he has, and God continues to pour out his blessings. You might say that things are looking up for Joseph, but soon the narrative takes a turn. Potiphar's wife enters the scene, and being the wife of someone so high up in Egyptian society, she was probably used to getting what she wanted, when she wanted, and because Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, she wanted him. Now, Potiphar's wife might have been very attractive, and Joseph, being a young man, might have been incredibly tempted by what she was offering him. But even if he wasn't attracted to her, the easiest route for Joseph was to agree to lie with her. But instead, he remained faithful, not just to his master Potiphar, but to God. In verse 9, he says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, in that statement, Joseph recognises the seriousness of sin. He's recognising that sin isn't just a horizontal issue between him and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, but it's also a vertical one. It has a big impact on his relationship with God. And I'm sure all of us here will know what it's like to face temptation. At home, we can be tempted to act selfishly, to be rude to our parents or to be unkind to our siblings. And then away from home, perhaps at school or when we're with friends, there's that temptation to fit in or to impress others, even when it means doing what we know we shouldn't. And if you're a Christian, we face other temptations too, don't we? We know that the best thing we can do is read our Bible or pray, but almost everything else captures our attention, whether that's our phone, a book or a video game. And perhaps for you, it's sexual temptation. Maybe you wrestle with inappropriate thoughts about members of the opposite sex, or you know that the things you're looking at online aren't pleasing to God. Like Joseph, this particular temptation might come your way day after day. And I'm standing here to say that this has been a battle for me many times over the course of my life. The fact is, when faced with temptation, across all kinds of areas, at home, at school, in my spiritual life, I've failed. It's not that, just, it's not that I've given into sin once or twice, but many times. And actually, I think that's going to be true for all of us here. So, how was Joseph able to resist when we often fail in the face of temptation? Now, ultimately, Joseph's only defence against sin was that in his heart he wanted to please God more than experience pleasure, more than avoiding pain. 
Isn't that amazing? Despite being abandoned by his brothers, sold into slavery, faced with temptation day after day after day, Joseph still wanted to please the Lord. And despite his circumstances, he could see that it was God who was with him, blessing him in Potiphar's household. And it was God who he wanted to serve above any earthly master or any earthly comfort. God enabled Joseph to withstand temptation, not just so that we would say, wow, what a great example Joseph is, but more importantly, so that we would say, wow, look how Joseph points us to Jesus. And the reason I say that is because Jesus is the only one to have ever lived a perfect life. He's the only one to have ever faced the full force of temptation and yet come out the other side guiltless and innocent. This perfect life that Jesus lived, it was one for you and it was one for me in his death on the cross. Jesus lived and died so that we might be able to stand before God as if that perfect life was our own. And in the fact that Jesus had to die on the cross, we see the seriousness of sin and we see the extent to which God was willing to show his love. When we look on this, when we look on this act of mercy and grace, we too can say in the face of temptation, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? But even when we fail to resist, the answer is not to wallow in self-pity or to convince ourselves that we'll do better next time. The answer is to run afresh to Jesus. We don't need to add our own efforts to his perfect sacrifice in order to be loved by him. Turn back to him and he will welcome you with open arms. One commentator on the life of Joseph says this. The purpose of this passage is not to get you to ask yourself in times of temptation, what would Joseph do? Its purpose is to encourage you to ponder what Jesus has done in your place. Now, do you see why that makes sense? Obviously, if we're in temptation and we're just looking at Joseph's life, we've just got this standard that we're trying to meet ourselves. But when we ponder on what Jesus has already done, that's when we sing like the song we were singing. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. The curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free. He is free indeed. That's what looking to Jesus enables you to live like. But that's not the only way that Joseph signposts us to Jesus. Like Jesus, Joseph's innocence is shamefully treated. We read in verses 13 to 20 that despite doing no wrong, he is accused and condemned as guilty. Joseph didn't... Uh, go along with Potiphar's wife's temptations. And Potiphar's wife is so offended that Joseph rejects her that she lies and accuses him of assaulting her. It's her word against his, and so Potiphar has no choice but to throw him in prison. And that brings us to our second point, which is God was with Joseph in prison. Cool. Let's get back into chapter 39, and we're gonna read from verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favour in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, what we've seen here is an innocent man accused, condemned as guilty and thrown into prison. And in that great injustice, it might be easy to think that God had abandoned him. But here again, in verses 21 and 23, we get the reminder that God was with Joseph. And in doing so, I think the writer of Genesis is showing us that there is always a deeper reality going on than what we can see with our own eyes. Joseph's situation looked helpless from a human perspective, but God was using it to fulfill his promises to his people. And not only was the Lord with Joseph, but in the depths of prison, he was showing him steadfast love. Despite sinking from the heights of managing Potiphar's house to the despair of a prison pit, Joseph continues to serve God faithfully. He doesn't wallow in self-pity and despair, but trusting God, he makes the most of his situation. And that's because Joseph knew it's far better to be in prison with the Lord's presence than to enjoy the richest comforts without him. Sometimes I go into the prison near where we live to help out with their Sunday church services. The people who come along to the services are in prison for all kinds of things. Some of them are drug dealers. Some of them have been involved in violent gangs. Despite their past, in prison, many of these men become Christians. And when you talk to them about their life story, you see this constant theme reoccurring. A lot of them will say this. They'll tell you that they feel more free in prison and knowing Jesus than they ever did outside of prison when they could do whatever they liked. Friends, for those of us who know Jesus, just to experience his mercy and grace is far better than anything the world could offer us. That means that we too can joyfully serve God in whatever situation he has placed us. Because we can know that with God's presence, we are exactly where we ought to be. With God's presence and continual blessing, Joseph quickly moves up the ranks in prison and soon is placed in charge over all the prisoners. And one day, two of Pharaoh's top-ranking staff are thrown into jail with him. They're placed under his care. Let's head into chapter 40 to read about what happens. So this is chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offence against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. 
So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So here's what's happening. In verse 5, we're told that on the same night, both the cupbearer and the baker dream a dream. Both of the interpretations of their dreams are beyond what they can work out by themselves, and they're left utterly distressed about what it could mean. But here we see Joseph's heart towards them as he sees that they are troubled, and in compassion he asks them why. Upon hearing their predicament, he points them to God and offers to help them. With God's help, Joseph tells them exactly what their dreams mean. And at this point, Joseph didn't know that interpreting the dreams would eventually be his way out of prison. He simply helps them out of kindness. Here again is how Joseph signposts us to Jesus. Firstly, Jesus left his throne in heaven and came to earth to be born in a manger. Now, we might think that Joseph fell far from Potiphar's right-hand man to prison, but think about how far Jesus stooped for us. Secondly, Jesus was moved with compassion to help those around him. He didn't seek his own glory, but constantly pointed people to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus offers his free gift of salvation for all, expecting nothing but faith in return. All that Joseph asked of the cupbearer was that he would remember him when he was released. Unfortunately, we read in verses 20 to 23 that this was not the case. I'll read it for you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief baker, the chief cupbearer, did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. We soon find out that from that point of them getting released, it is two long years for Joseph in prison before anyone remembers him. Can you imagine what it must have been like during those two years? Perhaps in the first week after the cupbearer left, every time Joseph heard steps coming towards the prison, he thought, this is it. I'm finally out of here. The cupbearer's remembered me. He's told people about me and I'm leaving. Maybe a month in, he'd be a little less ready to go, but still hopeful that he'd get out. Perhaps by the end of the first year, Joseph had resigned himself to the fact that no one was coming to save him at all. So where was God in this? What could he possibly be achieving now? And it, it's, it's difficult for us to understand with our limited perspective, but God's timing is always perfect. His sovereign hand causes all events to happen at just the right time, in just the right way, with just the right people. God was at work ensuring the cupbearer would remember Joseph just the right time for Joseph to bring about salvation for many. But for that to happen, we need to read the events of the next chapter. So let's move into our third and final point. God was with Joseph in Pharaoh's palace.
Like I said, it's two years until after the cupbearer leaves the prison that anything starts to happen. And two years after this happens, Pharaoh has two dreams. And his dreams are confusing. They're filled with imagery of cows and grain. Pharaoh's so troubled by the dreams that he asks all of his advisors to come up with a meaning. But no one can. This is where our flaky friend, the cupbearer, finally rejoins the story. He suddenly remembers that Joseph had correctly interpreted his dream and the baker's dream all those years ago. And so he tells Pharaoh what happened. Let's read from verse 14 of chapter 41 to see what happened next. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. It's just as dramatic, isn't it? In an instant, Joseph was thrown into prison, and in an instant, he'd pulled out of there as well. It just so happens that Joseph was the only man capable of providing the answers to Pharaoh's dream. Surely this was divine providence, the word we learned yesterday. God sent Pharaoh a dream that none of his advisors could interpret. And at the right time, he caused the cupbearer to remember the young man who could. Standing before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Joseph does not take any credit in his own abilities, but he passes all the glory back to God. Upon hearing the dream, Joseph reveals to Pharaoh that through his dream, God has shown what he is about to do in the coming years. The dream with the cows and the grain represents a time of plenty, followed by a time of famine. Joseph tells Pharaoh that if he does not wisely steward the food during the time of plenty, no one will be able to survive the oncoming danger. So he proposes placing stewards in charge to ensure that enough food is stored for the times of hardship so that when it happens, no one will go hungry. Pharaoh is so pleased that Joseph can not only interpret the idea, the dream, but come up with this idea as a solution, he immediately promotes Joseph to a position almost as high as himself. Back in the text, we read this in verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot, and they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring. He clothes him in garments of fine linen, and he takes him out in a chariot for all to bow before him. 
Just a few chapters ago, the same boy who was stripped of his robe by many colours by his jealous brothers now stands clothed in finery before all the people of Egypt. And as the story progresses, we find out that Joseph's plan did work. When the time of famine came, they had stored up enough food, not just to feed the Egyptians, but people from all over. Through this one man, there was salvation for the nations. Hopefully some of you are picking up on the pattern now. This is another signpost to Jesus. Just as Joseph provides food for all that were hungry, so Jesus came to be the bread of life. Jesus addresses our spiritual hunger. He addresses our deepest need. All throughout this talk, I've been speaking about just how amazing the presence of God is. And it's Jesus's life and death that wins that for us. By paying the price for our sin and giving us the righteousness we don't deserve, we can come to know God and to be loved by him. In some ways, each and every one of us is a mini Joseph. Without Jesus, we are trapped in the depths of our sin, unable to help ourselves. But through Jesus, we can be lifted out of that prison and restored to fullness of life. Just like Joseph, we can be given brand new clothes. We can wear the righteousness of Jesus. If you're listening along this evening and you don't think that you've ever put your trust in Jesus as your saviour, then this bit is for you. If you want to know God's presence in your life and if you want to know the freedom in sins forgiven, then the only thing you need to do is believe in Jesus for your salvation. You don't need to win against temptation in your own strength. And you don't need to make your life good enough so that God will want to be with you. You just need to believe and trust in Jesus. If that is you, please speak to a leader after the session. I'm sure they would be more than happy to pray with you and talk to you more. As we draw to a close now, looking back on these three chapters, we can continually see God's presence with Joseph throughout the ups and the downs of his life. Whilst the events occurring to Joseph must have felt like a roller coaster ride, there was one constant through it all. The Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord was causing everything to happen for the salvation of his people. I wonder if your life can sometimes feel like a roller coaster ride or that you feel completely out of control of the events happening around you. Perhaps even being here on this camp and listening to this message is something that feels out of your control. But I believe God wants to speak comfort to you by his word and encourage you that all things work together for the good of those who love him. Matt titled his message last night, A Wonderful Plan for Your Life. I'd like to read a quote that helps us to really understand what that means. And I hope it's as helpful to you as it has been for me. I think it will come up on the screen. We've probably all heard the statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But then the realities of life press in on us relentlessly. Sickness, pain, broken relationships, abuse, shattered dreams, temptation, sin, death. So where is 
this wonderful plan for my life? What on earth is God up to? That's actually a great question. When we explore what God is up to in our lives, we discover that his good plan is not a plan for our ease and comfort, but rather a plan for our death and resurrection, dying to sin and to our old self and rising to a whole new life in him. He loves you and me too much to leave us unchanged. This process is often hard and painful as Joseph discovered, and the pathway along which you are called to walk may be similarly confusing and disorientating. Yet along that difficult pathway, Joseph found that the Lord was with him, even when he felt most abandoned and alone. In the light of Joseph's experience in Egypt, we too may discover that even when God's wonderful plan leads us into trials and temptation, his grace is sufficient for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Joseph that points us to your son, Jesus. We thank you that Jesus's righteousness was won for us so that we can know your presence. Lord, I thank you that just the fact that you are with us means that um, our lives are not random chance and things are not happening out of your control, but that you are directing everything that happens for our good and for your glory. Help us to trust you and to know your presence more and more. Amen.